This is Mormon Awakenings. Please email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com. It's probably time for me to think of a new name for this podcast because none of us are Mormons anymore. And since none of us are Mormons anymore, it doesn't make a lot of sense to name the podcast Mormon Awakenings. Because according to our current prophet, there are no Mormons. We're not Mormons, assuming any of you were Mormons to begin with. But but for those of you who were, you're not a Mormon anymore. Instead, you're merely a member of the restored church or the church of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're now a saint. You know, there's this new book the church has put out called Saints, which is the new official history of the church. So maybe as members of this church, we're saints, but, but one thing's clear, we're not Mormons. So I need to think of a new name for this podcast. I, I can't call it Mormon Awakenings anymore because there are no Mormons. So by definition, there cannot be Mormon Awakenings. So I need a new name. Awakenings is too broad, although maybe that works. I don't know. More Awakenings or Mo Awakenings, that seems a little too clever, while at the same time being confusing. So it's too clever and confusing, which is usually the result when you're too clever. M Awakenings? I don't know. But I need a new name. I need a better name. If any of you have suggestions, email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com. That's the old name at gmail.com. Just as an aside, I like the move to get rid of the name Mormon. I think de-emphasizing Mormon. In fact, getting rid of it entirely, which is which is really what Russell M. Nelson is trying to do. He's trying to get rid of it entirely. That's the counsel. It's sinful to refer to yourself as a Mormon. It's sinful to, to call the church the Mormon church. You know, that's about as unequivocal as you can get in regard to use of the term Mormon. So we're really getting rid of it entirely. We're expunging that term from our lexicon. And at first, I was surprised by the move. I think it's a great move because there were a lot of cultural expectations, a lot of roles, a lot of boxes and limitations that were being attached to the term Mormon. Mormon was becoming a cliche, and everybody knew what that cliche meant. It was a squeaky clean Eagle Scout who obeyed orders, did what he or she was told, never questioned, just executed the instructions, the game plan typically Republican, and this list, you can add to this list. But my point is, being a Mormon or Mormon, that had become highly corrupted by all the things that were attached to it, all the expectations, the cultural histories, the roles. And the church had become this institution, this organization that enforced the standards of playing this role, the institution or organization that judged whether or not you were playing this role as defined by all the things that had gotten attached to being a Mormon. And that, and there were a lot of good things attached to being a Mormon, but it had become separated from the ultimate goal, which is the pursuit of truth. It's hard to pursue truth when you're so boxed in by a predefined role. So getting rid of the term Mormon and ceasing to refer to the church as the Mormon church, well, that's a good thing in my mind. So I'm thinking it would also be good to change the name of this podcast from Mormon Awakenings to something less restrictive, less defined Awakenings. And I I just don't know what that thing is. I don't know what should go before Awakenings. I don't think I can just use Awakenings. Maybe I can. I don't know. 
Let me know if you have some thoughts. Anyways, enough about that. The real question I want to talk about today is not the name of this podcast, but rather this question. What comes first, the chicken or the egg? What do you think, you Mormon Awakenings, or rather you Something Awakenings listeners? Does the chicken come first or the egg come first? It's a hard question to answer, isn't it? Because you can't have a chicken without an egg, right? Because chickens come from the eggs, but chickens also lay the eggs. So if you don't have a chicken, you don't have any eggs. But if you don't have any eggs, you don't have any chickens. And around and around we go. We've all thought about this questions. We've heard this question before. And of course, it's not a real question, is it? It's, it's an illustrative device that we use to describe situations where there's a process that sort of feeds on itself, and we're not quite sure how the process gets started. And so the rhetorical device that we'll often use in these type of situations is, well, it's a chicken or egg problem. There's a guy, however, named Paul Levy. He's a Jungian therapist, an unusual guy to say the least. He's recently written a book called The Quantum Revelation. Sadly, Quantum Revelation is not in audible form yet. You have to read it. You can't just listen to it passively while you're riding your bike or walking around town. So that's a bummer. But but if you do read Quantum Revelation, you come away with the feeling that the question of what comes first, the chicken or the egg, is sort of a trick question. You come away after reading the quantum revelation thinking that neither the chicken nor the egg comes first, but rather the thought comes first. Because Paul Levy's basic assertion, and I'm simplifying here, is that life, all of life, your life, the state of your life, everything about all that we're experiencing is basically the observer effect on steroids. We talked a little bit about the observer effect last week. And the observer effect, by way of reminder is basically, and I'm again, I'm going to simplify here, and all of you professional physicists out there may take issue with this, but it's basically this. The act of observing any phenomenon affects the outcome of that phenomenon. And on one level, this makes sense, of course. Let's, let's suppose you're measuring the speed of the flow of water in a river, and you put this little device into the river that spins as the water rushes past it. Well, that device is going to change the flow rate of the river. And so observing or measuring the flow of the river, whatever tools you use necessarily affect the phenomenon, in this case, the flow of the river. And so that sort of observer effect makes a lot of sense to us. We understand that because we can see that our mechanical device to measure what we're trying to measure will affect, you know, the the flow rate of the river, for example. That type of observer effect is uncontroversial. But there's another observer effect that is very controversial. And this is the type of observer effect that Paul Levy is talking about. As you start to measure smaller and smaller and smaller things, getting down to the atomic level, the subatomic level, as you start to measure the state or the location of these subatomic particles, There's the idea that they're everywhere and nowhere at the same time, which makes no sense to our limited minds. So as you measure things that are smaller and smaller and smaller, it becomes increasingly apparent that those tiny things are everywhere and nowhere at the same time, and that they only take a position when they're observed. That's weird. And this theory, roughly, that very tiny particles are everywhere and nowhere until they're observed. Well, that's the basis of quantum physics. Again, I'm simplifying and I'm 
probably brutalizing it for those who are real physicists out there. But, but quantum physics is interested in this realm. And the fathers of quantum physics, Max Planck, Niels Bohr, even Albert Einstein, had varying opinions about what this meant about our consciousness or our spiritual nature or our intention as sentient beings. And some of these earlier quantum thinkers began to also think that intention, that our thoughts themselves were the start of everything. So it wasn't the chicken and it wasn't the egg, it was the thought. Paul Levy takes up this idea and amps it up a lot when he tries to marry principles of physics with questions about the meaning of life. And it's controversial because it all kind of adds up to what amounts to magic, in a way. Because what Paul Levy is suggesting is that thoughts themselves are the power. They're the power to organize. They're the force that leads to lower levels of entropy. Now, all of us know at one level that thoughts are the beginning of plans And plans then bring action, and then action brings results. But all of us also constrain this. We constrain this process with thoughts like this. Well, if your plans are unrealistic, or if your thoughts or your goals are unrealistic, then it doesn't matter what your actions are. Or if your actions aren't executed properly, then you'll fail. And we believe in a process of failure and failure and reiteration and reiteration and reiteration and slowly learning through our failures. We, we believe in that process already. So all of us have sort of some faith in the idea that thoughts come first. But Paul Levy takes it way beyond that. He says the thoughts, the beliefs, the intention, that that observer effect in and of itself is the power to produce the result. And it's only our belief in the need for subsequent plans and action. And it's only our beliefs that some plans and some actions will be ineffectual that hinder us from producing or experiencing what our thoughts are trying to create. Well, that's, that's, that's a whole nother level, and that's also weird. Paul Levy goes so far as to say that the mind and the power of thought is so powerful, so efficacious, that it can constrain itself by limiting thoughts. And you start to put Paul Levy's ideas all together, and, and like I said before, it starts to add up to, you know, magic. And it raises some very profound questions like, does the mere belief in something make it true? Or does the mere belief that something can happen make that event happen? And this is sort of weird. This is sort of quantum. And this also goes at the heart of our understanding of truth and facts. There's an old expression, you're, you're entitled to your opinion, but you're not entitled to your facts. Well, if you listen to Paul Levy, you sort of are entitled to your own facts. And on one level, this makes no sense to us. And this is also a source of great contention inside our community because people argue about historical facts and they get very worked up inside our community in particular about historical facts. Did Joseph Smith see God and Jesus in the vision or not? That seems like that's sort of a binary fact. It either happened or it didn't. And I don't think anyone thinks that one's belief on that issue determines whether or not the first vision as described took place. Well, Paul Levy is kind of saying 
that everything we're experiencing is constructed by our own minds, beliefs, thoughts, intentions. It's all relative. It's all ever-changing. Could this possibly be true? It reminds me of something that was quite popular at the end of the 90s, beginning of the 2000s. It was very trendy during that period to discuss and to practice something called the law of attraction. I mean, it's still trendy now, the law of attraction. The law of attraction basically says you get what you believe. You don't get what you want in life. You get what you believe. And even though very few of us would go so far as to say that one's belief or one's beliefs entitle one to one's facts, there is something that we all sort of viscerally understand or appreciate or believe about the law of attraction, which is your, your vibration, your tone matters, and it attracts or repels things. That your energy, your vibration, your attitude can attract or repel things that you want or don't want. All of us sort of intuitively know that that's true on some level, and we constrain it or we modify it personally, depending on our own personalities. Well, what's interesting to me is that when you start reading ancient stories, spiritual, holy stories, like stories in the Old Testament, like stories in the New Testament, like stories in the Book of Mormon, when you start reading these stories through the lens that Paul Levy's offering us, they take on new meaning. So I guess what I'm saying is Paul Levy's views are additive. They are using the nomenclature of big business, accretive. Paul Levy's views help us understand statements that Jesus makes about belief. Jesus spends a lot of time in the New Testament saying, O ye of little faith, which can be translated as, O ye of little belief. No wonder you can't see the miracles, O ye of little belief or faith. Jesus also says things like, according to your faith or your belief, so let it be done. Jesus, it appears, is wading into the quantum realm. What's most interesting about all this is none of it has anything to do with our traditional, clichéic understanding of what it means to be a Mormon. And so, thank heavens, we've been relieved of that label and that limitation. Because there's no addition to the restoration when we're all laboring under the ossified label of Mormon. I am so glad that I can be more than a Mormon, that I can be more than some stereotype, at least in my own mind. Now, it's one thing to say the accretive thoughts of the Paul Levies of this world might be helpful to the newly liberated LDS. It's quite another to say that the Paul Levy ideas of this world should be thrown into our theological stew. To answer that question, let's turn to the story of David and Goliath, as well as the story of Luke Skywalker, because they're both very similar. Let's start first with the story of David. And before we start with the story of David, you got to start with the story of Saul, who was really the first king of Israel. Everyone thinks of David as being the first king of Israel. He wasn't. Saul was the first king of Israel. Saul, if you'll remember, was appointed by Samuel. Samuel appointed Saul after the children of Israel demanded a king. They had been ruled already for a couple hundred years by judges who were basically wise men representing each tribe. Well, after the period of judges, the children of Israel began to demand a king. And so Samuel, the prophet at the time, was dispatched to anoint one. And he anointed as the first king of Israel, Saul, from the tribe of Benjamin, which was the smallest tribe of all. King Saul was a great king. He won a lot of battles, took a lot of territory, built the foundations for what would become the Israel empire, the only period of empire that Israel ever had. 
which lasted only a couple hundred years. Anyway, Saul was the first king who laid the foundations for all that. After one of his battles, however, Saul was rendered unworthy. And what was the great sin that rendered King Saul unworthy? Well, he conducted his own sacrifices to the Lord without authority. There was a limit on King Saul's authority. He was supposed to fight the wars, manage the temporal affairs of Israel, but he was not supposed to conduct any spiritual rituals. And he did. His ego at some point got the best of him, and he decided he should have all the authority, and he conducted the sacrificial rites, and he was rendered unworthy. He subsequently committed another grave sin, which was that he refused to destroy all of the Amalekites and all of their stuff. He let some of the Amalekites live, and he kept some of their stuff after a battle with the Amalekites. You remember during Old Testament times, during ancient Israel, the practice as dictated by God was to completely annihilate the enemies and all their stuff and all their cattle, just destroy everything. Well, Saul didn't want to do that. He thought that was a waste. And you can have a long conversation about whether Saul was right. Nonetheless, these two acts, performing the ritual sacrifice, as well as refusing to destroy completely the Amalekites and all their cattle and stuff, rendered Saul unworthy. And a search for a new king to replace Saul began. What's interesting is that Saul wasn't immediately deposed. He just became unworthy. He remained as king for a long time after his unworthiness was declared by Samuel and God. But he also knew that there was a replacement in the wings. And that replacement was David, who also was anointed by Samuel, the prophet, when he was a young boy. Samuel went throughout Israel from house to house to house to find a successor to Saul, knowing that Saul was unworthy, knowing that Saul would have to be replaced. During his search, he stumbled upon the house of Jesse in a small little town called Bethlehem. You may have heard of it before. Well, David's father lived in Bethlehem. Therefore, David lived in Bethlehem. Therefore, Bethlehem became the city of David, which happens to be the city where Christ was born. Anyways, Samuel went to Bethlehem guided by God to look for a new king. He declared openly that he was going to Bethlehem just to perform sacrifices for the city because Saul, who had been declared unworthy by that Samuel, knew that Samuel was out looking for his replacement. So Saul was becoming increasingly paranoid. So Samuel said he was going to Bethlehem just to perform sacrifices. He didn't want to say openly why he was going to Bethlehem. Anyways, at Bethlehem, Samuel encountered the house of Jesse. Jesse had eight sons, and the oldest, Eliab, was handsome, strong, looked kingly, and Samuel, using his natural eyes, thought, well, here's my, here's my future king, Jesse's oldest son, Eliab. But God came into Samuel's mind and said, don't look at outward appearances. That's not what we're looking for. Those are not the criteria to find a new king for Israel. So Samuel asked for the second son of Jesse, and then the third, and then the fourth, all the way down until the youngest, David, who at the time was out tending to the sheep. So that's how much Jesse thought of his youngest son. He thought he wasn't even a contender. He had sent him off to herd the sheep while all the other sons, all the older sons, got a chance to be named king. Anyways, they call David in from the fields, and as soon as Samuel lays eyes on David, he hears God's voice tell him, that's the, the person to anoint to be the next king of Israel young David. Okay, let's take a little break here and put this into Paul Levy context. There's a lot of thought, a lot of intention, and a lot of belief flying around and being revised 
at each step of this story of Saul, Samuel, going to Bethlehem, Jesse, Eliab, and finally settling on David as the newly appointed. Let's first talk about Saul. Saul was initially anointed by Samuel. Then he committed some sins. He performed the sacrificial ritual. And then he also refused to obliterate some of the stuff that he got from the Amalekites. Then Samuel went back and infected Saul with this thought that he was unworthy. And Saul believed it. In the Old Testament, once Saul realized that Samuel had declared him unworthy, he began to be vexed by bad spirits or, in the words of Paul Levy, bad thoughts. And he became very melancholy and depressed. Saul believed Samuel. We don't have the counterfactual, but it would be interesting, wouldn't it? What if Saul just said, oh, Samuel, you're full of crap? I only raise this because as Mormons, we really had a strong belief in worthiness and unworthiness. Now that we're freed from what it means to be a Mormon, how does that free us from our own self-judgments? I'm not sure I know the answer to that question, but I raise it because that's the first thing that happens in the story of Saul and David and Samuel. Saul's declared unworthy and accepts that declaration. And for the rest of the story, Saul slowly falls apart mentally and becomes more and more paranoid and melancholic, self-destructive. And the question is, where does the power come to render Saul that? Secondly, Samuel goes to Jesse's house. Jesse, by the way, just as an aside, is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. You remember Ruth is the Moabite damsel who positioned herself at the feet of Boaz after he had engaged in a night of binge drinking. And then he woke up in the threshing barn and there's Ruth and, you know, he liked her anyways. Anyways, that's Jesse's grandmother, Ruth, Naomi's daughter-in-law, the Moabite damsel. Anyways, when Samuel got to Jesse's house and he saw Eliab, Jesse's oldest son, he thought he had found the king. And God had to put a new thought into Samuel's head, which was, you can't judge based on appearances alone. And Samuel began listening to this inner voice, which guided him, which led him to this young boy, David, who wasn't even considered by his own father, Jesse, to be worthy to be king. And this is before David killed Goliath. And remember that when David killed Goliath, he was so small and young, he couldn't even put on the king's armor because it was too heavy for him. So it's almost as if Samuel appointed, instead of the handsome return missionary or the elders quorum president, he appointed the, you know, the blazer or the, the newly ordained deacon to be stake president or, or to be like a mission president or to, you know, to be in the quorum of the 12th. That, that's kind of what it was tantamount to. And then David accepted the anointment. A lot of thoughts, a lot of beliefs, a lot of mental legitimacy and mental permission being conveyed via Samuel. And at any point along the road, any of these actors could have believed or thought or intended something completely different and it would have changed the whole narrative. Belief changes your trajectory. The question is how far, and I don't know the answer to that. Can belief take you as far as determining your own facts, specifically historical facts about things that have occurred? I'm not so sure that it can, but it certainly can change your future. The story of Luke Skywalker fighting Darth Vader. Well, that's a story just like David and Goliath, isn't it? Luke is this nobody living far away from anything important. The Goliath he kills, of course, is the Empire, the Death Star specifically. And at the end of the movie, the quintessential moment is when Luke turns off the computer and instead decides to rely on the force, the force that determines all things. And through his belief, he hits the bullseye and the Death Star explodes. Well, this is what Paul Levy is getting at. Paul Levy 
is trying to help us understand the force. And according to him, the force is belief. The force is intention. The force is thought itself. Thought collapses the wave function. Of course, I know what some of you are thinking, which is, how does this all start? Where does it all begin? And if thought is the power, is the force, how can we make sure we're thinking good thoughts? Because no one wants to end up like Darth Vader or Goliath or Saul or, frankly, David in the end. You remember what happened at the end of the story of David? There's that little episode with Bathsheba and then the killing of Uriah. And, you know, so thought's a powerful thing one way or another. How do we know that we're thinking good thoughts, constructive thoughts? How do we know that the power we're wielding will produce good ends? I don't know if anyone has all the answers to that, but I can take a stab at part of the answer. And part of the answer is, how does the thought make you feel? If the thought brings peace, brings a feeling of harmony or love or compassion, it's probably a pretty good thought. If the thought makes you uptight, nervous, angry, greedy, or obviously plays to your ego, well, maybe it's time to reevaluate that thought. And in regards of the origin of these things, which is really a question, does God inspire our thoughts or does God respond to our thoughts? Again, I think if you ask a hundred different people, you'll get a hundred different answers. But I do know one thing. If you wake up thinking things are going to be great today, they're going to be better than they would otherwise. If you expect miracles or at a minimum, just lucky coincidences, you'll experience those miracles, or at a minimum, those lucky coincidences. If you expect to succeed, you'll succeed. If you expect to be happy, you will be. You won't just experience your life differently. Your life will be different, in fact. And I know even thought doesn't entitle us to our own facts. Beliefs don't render us able to create our own facts, but in a way they sort of do, because your beliefs will dictate your circumstances. Your beliefs will dictate the facts of your life, at least as far as your present and your future are concerned. Of course, at one level, we all know this, which is why we're seeking to begin with. We want a better present. We want a better future. We want more happiness, more abundance, more peace, less stress. Well, it might all just start with your thoughts. Because at the end of the day, you don't get what you want. You only get what you believe. Well, I've gone on far too long. I hope you found something interesting here today. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com. Let me know a new, better name for the podcast as far as you're concerned. Until next time.